Okay, let's do it. Hello and welcome to Slycast, the podcast where we celebrate and analyze the career of Sylvester Stallone. I'm your host, Craig Cohen, and as always, I have with me Jeff Ferry. Nice to see your underwear problem is solved. (laughs) And Jeff Hewlett. Hey, call me Armani with a badge. (laughs) So this uh, episode, we're talking about 1989's buddy cop action comedy movie, Tango and Cash. And I can't wait to talk about this movie for you guys because it seems like there's a lot to talk about here in terms of what works and, more importantly, what doesn't work. But before we do that, I want to just say um, hello and thank you to Andrew over at uh, a new website called Podcasts Are the Best, and I'll link to it in the show notes, um, who did a really nice write-up on our show. And what he does over there is he talks about podcasts that he listens to and also podcasts that don't really get the sort of mainstream exposure that a lot of your uh, other podcasts might get that have, you know, mainstream talent hosting them, you know, like your... um your Earwolf shows or your Mark Marin's WTF or stuff like that. So it's kind of a cool little showcase for us shows that are sort of uh, under the radar a little bit. And uh, thank you, Andrew. I know you appreciate um, all the work we do, and uh, we thank you for showcasing us. And also, Andrew posts interviews with some of the podcast creators on on the site. And um, I sat down with him a couple weeks ago, and we, and we did an interview that he posted. And... Um, I had linked to it on our Facebook page, but I will include the link in the show notes here as well. So again, Andrew, thank you so much for that. Um, we do really appreciate it. And we also want to send a hello and thank you out to uh, a new iTunes review we got. And you can uh, give us a, a review over at iTunes. We love seeing new reviews. I saw this one come in and, and uh, smiled seeing that somebody had given us an, another five-star review. This one came in from Mando Don't Text, and it's it's uh, titled Awesome Listen. And he says, I love this podcast. This has got to be the best on Stallone. These guys are funny and never bore. It's a shame that we have to wait a month for each new one, but that's what makes it even better. Keep up the good work, guys. Thank you, Mando. That's very, very cool. All right, so now that we got that business out of the way, guys... Are you ready to jump into Tango and Cash? Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. So it came out December 22nd, 1989, which I think is one of the first problems that I see with this movie because doesn't this feel like a summer movie? You mean it doesn't feel like a Christmas movie to you? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know what kind of Christmases you have at your house, but this is what we had around the old uh, Christmas tree. (laughs) Jeff Hewlett. We had a lot of $9 shirts under our Christmas tree. <laughs> but now, you know, I, I definitely see the release date as, as a, an interesting trouble for this film. And, you know, if I, I'm not mistaken, I think this may be the first Sly film we've seen where he's kind of put up sort of as equals with another action star of the day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this split is. Bill. 
Yeah, this is what we we could have gotten in uh, that alternate Rambo two that would have had John Travolta as his sidekick. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it uh, this was a really troubled production. Um, it's credited to director Andre uh, Konchalski, and I'm sure I just butchered his name. He's a Russian director who was really known in America for directing Runaway Train in 1985. He was replaced during filming, though, by Albert Magnoli, who a lot of us probably know from Prince's Purple Rain. The director of photography was also removed from this movie and replaced, apparently because Stallone didn't like the way that he was lighting him. And then there were also problems in the overall tone of the movie between um, Stallone and the director and producer John Peters, who wanted a little bit more of a, you know, sort of the, the wacky, goofier, campy, if you will, approach. And Stallone and uh, the director wanted uh, a more serious and realistic film. So I, I think what we get is this weird... Uh, amalgamation uh, where it, it never really has a, a solid foot in each world. I will say this, as I was watching the film, there were moments where I said, if you edit this scene differently, you have a really good scene here. Jeff Hewlett, do you, did you notice anything uh, in the shifting tones of this film? I did. I, I, I kind of wanted it to go in a certain way, and I think if they'd have I think it would have held up better over time had they kind of toward, gone toward more the serious side as opposed to the comedy side. I mean, to me, the comedy parts of this movie make it feel more dated. And uh, there were some sequences, especially some of the action sequences with some of the more ridiculous stunt work, that if they had trimmed some of those stunts out, it may have you know lessened some of the dated feel. Yeah, yeah. And I also noticed just scenes where you cut off the one-liners. And boom, yeah. it, the scene's completely different. Um, Jeff Ferry. I see no flaws in this film. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. On a scale of 1 to 10, this movie is an 11 for me. Oh, Whoa. wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. So is it more just the fact that this is such a unique film in the sense that you're getting a true buddy cop film from Stallone? Or is it, you know? Uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of things that come together on this film for me. A lot of it is. This came out um, in 89. We're basically in the 90s, so I'm about 10 when this comes out, 10, 11. Yeah. So I'm about the age probably you guys were when your Cobras were hitting, your lockups were hitting. Mm-hmm. So a lot to do with age. And I really like I like those dumb movies. I like your airplanes, your naked guns. And this almost gets into that territory at some point. <laughs> and I don't know what it is. Like the logical part of my brain can see the flaws. The other part of my brain just doesn't see him. The right hand does not see what the left hand is doing. And like, I am not going to exaggerate. I've not, I haven't seen it recently. I haven't seen this movie in probably seven, eight years, but I've seen this movie at least 50 times. Wow. Okay. This is uh, admittedly a, a Stallone entry um, that I've probably seen the least. And um, that's surprising for me because, you know, it seems like a movie that would be up my alley and it's got Kurt Russell who, uh, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of, and we'll talk as we go through, but I also think that a lot of that comedic tone, a lot of those beats are beats that I think Kurt Russell really uh, could have hit or should have hit better. Um, and I just don't know if it's just a, a matter of getting lost in, in the edit. Um, speaking of Kurt Russell, 
his character, Gabriel Cash, Lieutenant Gabriel Cash, was originally cast to be Patrick Swayze, who had to leave to do Roadhouse. Now, Jeff Ferry, do you think your opinion of this movie might change if we were in that alternate universe where Patrick Swayze played the role of Cash? Uh, I would say so, because... I mean, I like Patrick Swayze. He's a he's a quality actor, but Kurt Russell is Kurt Russell. Yeah. He can do no wrong. I mean, if I had to rank my two favorite actors in this movie, I don't know that I could do it. <laughs> wow. And I'm not sure Stallone ends up number one. Well, th- there is a huge, huge talent list in this movie. We've got Stallone, of course. We've got Kurt Russell. We've got Terry Hatcher. We've got Jack Palance. We've got the excellent Brian James, who almost steals this movie. We've got an uncredited uh, Jeffrey Lewis as uh, Captain Schroeder. We've got Eddie Bunker from Reservoir Dogs. Um, we've got Robert Zarr as the Jaw. and We've got Michael Jeter as Skinner, the audio expert. We've got Clint Howard as Tango's strange cellmate. So you've really got a loaded cast here. You're, you're definitely not exaggerating there, Jeff Ferry. Jeff Hewlett, feelings on what kind of movie we could have gotten if Patrick Swayze had stuck around? Wow, that's that's a vision that I'm not sure that I really want to dive into too much because one of the you know like Jeff Ferry has a huge soft spot for this movie. One of the reasons why I actually like a lot of this movie is because I felt like Kurt Russell was almost uh, channeling uh, Jack Burton a little bit here and there in this movie, and that's one of my favorite Kurt Russell characters. So I kind of almost transpose that other character into this movie, and it kind of makes me like it uh, a bit more than maybe I would normally. But I think. Swayze would have worked better if it was a more serious movie. I'm not sure Swayze fits the the comedic parts of this film too much, the one-liners, and and, uh, I'm not sure how well he would fit into that really over-the-top action. I mean, Swayze's done some physical stuff and, uh, you know, some some decent fight scenes, but I'm not sure how he would be with all the car chasing and the gunplay. Right, right. So um, a a couple more notes before we jump into the scene-specific rundown. But um, the movie, uh, as we mentioned, came out around Christmas time. It opened uh, December twenty second, nineteen eighty nine. If I didn't say that already, on a budget of fifty five million, it made sixty three point four million. So a modest box office. But when you subtract the production costs, um, it doesn't really deliver too much of a return. Um, also notable for this is a- another aspect that really makes this um, an eighties film. And that would be the score by Harold Faltemeyer, who a lot of people probably know from Beverly Hills Cop and that iconic theme, Axel F. And Fletch. And Fletch, yes. Jeff Ferry, do you want to talk a little bit about the music in this movie? I mean, if ever there was a, a score that matched the tone of a film, I mean, the tone of the film is kind of all over the place, <laughs> but the score is right there with it. Like, you have a... It tries to be like serious at the serious moments, but it's got that kind of that loose, kind of soft, almost like that uh, the Beverly Hills Cop feel of like, hey, you know, we're all just having a good time here. I know people are getting killed left and right, and we're bl- kicking people downstairs and blowing them up, but like, hey, we're all having a good time here. Yeah, I almost picture Harold Faltemeyer sitting in his living room watching uh, the you know the, the the film on a VHS with his Casio out, just taking yeah. keys <laughs> and pressing record. Uh, Jeff Hewlett, I yeah, I, I love following up your comments, Craig. So I was going to say the the scene where they intro the Cash character has some of the cheesiest music I think I've ever heard, and that music comes up again later on in the film when he's. 
uh, when he finds himself in the recording studio confronting the the tape analysis, audio analysis guy, you hear it again. And, you know, if, if you guys out there listening don't know what I'm talking about, go and watch those couple of scenes and listen to that music, just hone in on it. And it's really rough. Yeah, the thing about the music is it, it does sort of serve its purpose and it sort of fits when it works. Uh, but the one thing is I you don't really have any kind of iconic Axel F type moment. There was really no theme in this movie that I picked up on, and and uh, and that's unfortunate because a lot of times uh, themes really help you appreciate a movie or will take you back to certain moments. It seems like you picked up on that uh, a little, Jeff Hewlett, but uh, but I seem to miss it. So I, I know, uh, J- Jeff Ferry, you just dropped a bombshell on us saying that this is an 11 on your scale, and we didn't really talk prior to sitting down for this recording, um, so I don't want to put you on a spot, do you, but do you want to sort of take the lead on this film? Oh, no, and the reason why I didn't was because I can't... I have so many, like, weird... Like, it's... Having watched it, I, I specifically did not watch it for a long time. Uh-huh. So I'm like, maybe it's all just, it's just all like memory. Like, oh, maybe I was just a kid. I was in a different place. But like watching again was like just slipping under the covers. Boom. Perfect. All right. Great all right. Movie. Like I realized the movie's not great, but it's still an 11. All right. So so you're saying there's a conflict of interest uh, that, that uh, right. prevents you from being able to run through this movie. Listen, uh, unless you want to have a six-hour podcast and I <laughs> – all right. Uh, very cool. So I will say this. I, I really enjoy the way that this movie sets up um, the two characters. We we get our, our opening sequence with Ray Tango, Sylvester Stallone, who is sort of a really dapper, you know, well-dressed, uh, well-put-together uh, GQ man, if you will. And we have this really cool sequence, which has him uh, pursuing a an oil tanker that is about to leave his jurisdiction. And we get um, a really cool sequence where he pulls out in front of him, stops his car. And then there's a, a big showdown. He puts special bullets in his gun. Can you talk uh, about the, the bullet swap out Jeff Ferry? I'm not sure why Stallone does it in this film, <laughs> because this scene is like a, a shot by shot remake from police story. Right. Jackie Chan's police story. Yeah. So I believe in, I haven't seen police story and I don't know how long, I think he's taken him out for a reason in that this, it seems almost like there is no reason to do it yeah. <laughs> because it looks like he swaps the bullets out for the same bullets, like the same caliber, same everything. Yeah. Plus I'm not sure why any truck would stop when a guy is shooting a revolver at you. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, watching it, I'd always assumed that I guess when I was younger that he maybe he had shot the tires out or he'd done something. Yeah. No, he just they just stop and fly through the windshield. I mean it's it's still an awesome looking scene. Yeah. But it makes no sense. Why at that point, why stop? Just plow him over. Right, right. And I will say that, that this was also the first indication that there was gonna be some noticeable stunt problems for me. And I say that in the sense that for me, I was looking at the stunt driver they used and the coverage they used. 
And there were a handful of moments where I said, that's not Stallone. And in other movies, maybe Stallone was a little more physical and did a little more of his own stunts. But this driving sequence, just um, I saw the seams a little bit, if you will. And then later on in the movie, um, during the prison escape and a couple other sequences, I, I noticed some noticeable stunt guys. Is that something that either one of you guys picked up on, uh, Jeff Hewlett? You know, actually, I, I was trying to look for examples of that, and I think the only time that I really called into question whether or not it was actually Sly is during the prison escape. I didn't catch it as much during the, the truck sequence. I'm going to have to watch the intro again. Mm-hmm. Um, any feelings on this um, introduction of Ray Tango? Yeah, I, I like the way that they set Sly's character up in this, because he plays a, a bit of a different role than we've seen him in prior films, you know, he's been usually plays an underdog role or, um, you know, someone who is, you know, not the, the top cop, you know, he's not the popular guy. He's not the, you know, the well-dressed rich guy, you know, and I, I like that he's got a different uh, way about him. And I was going to ask Jeff Ferry about this because uh, he has experience with firearms. I mean, I, I was questioning how uh, easy it would be to actually be that accurate with that handgun at, at that distance under that kind of pressure. Well, I'm not sure how far away he is when he starts shooting out that window, but when they first show the truck, it looks like it's a mile down the road. Yeah, really. I mean, yeah, it's an unbelievable. And then he hits like, what does he shoot it three times and right in the center of the windshield. Yep. Every time. Which also leads you to wonder, is he trying to shoot them? Because <laughs> if so, you're just murdering them because they're not really doing anything. They're only, I mean, I guess they're running away, but I'm pretty sure he would have, that's, you know, I'm pretty sure he would have been on suspension at the very least for shooting someone who's just driving a truck. Absolutely. And, it's and not in PSA. your jurisdiction, as they keep pointing out. <laughs> and it's a good PSA for seatbelts as well, because oh, yes. neither of the guys in the cab are actually wearing them since they fly, you know, through the windshield <laughs> well, after they slam the brakes on. Robert Zadar probably didn't think he needed one because what could possibly hurt him? With that jaw, nothing. <laughs> Who actually just recently, he passed away at the end of last month. Oh, yeah, I did remember saying that. Yeah, yeah. So um, we've got the scene where the uh, the other cops show up, and we get this really sort of angry, like, only what you can call sort of California dude cop who's got shades on, kind of like a, a, a mullet, if you will, and he gets right in Tango's face, and is yelling that he totally screwed up. There's all that's on that truck is gasoline. And somebody says uh, the, the the famous line, uh, does does he think he's Rambo? Uh, Stallone has a, a very witty reply to that, a sort of tongue in cheek, wink, wink reply. And then he shoots the gas tank, revealing that it is full of cocaine. He takes a little taste and says, um, what is uh who wants to party or something oh. like that? <laughs> what do you know? It's snowing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in this opening sequence alone, there are so many one-liners. Uh, after the two guys fall out of the truck, he sort of drops the the handcuffs and says, do you guys like jewelry? This is really the first indicator that we're going to get uh, a lot of uh, one-liners. And I guess we should talk real quick about writer Randy Feldman, who has eight writing credits to his name, and that doesn't mean that he hasn't done, you know, uh, maybe rewrite work or anything else, but uh, prior to Tango and Cash, in 1981, he wrote Hell Night. Then in 93, he wrote uh, the Van Damme classic Nowhere to Run. 
Then in 97, he wrote the Eddie Murphy vehicle, Metro. After that, he worked on a TV show called Early Edition, another TV show called Martial Law, um, wrote a TV movie in 2005 called The Reading Room, and then in 2011 wrote a movie called As Luck Would Have It. So um, kind of an interesting uh, filmography, you know, and uh, for a, a second movie, um, it definitely seems like a, a pretty big movie to drop a writer into. So I, I wonder what the story is behind that. I wonder if this was possibly a spec script that uh, Randy Feldman had that the studio got their hands on. So now we cut to the introduction of um, Kurt Russell's Gabriel, Lieutenant Gabriel Cash, unless I'm mistaken. No, um, you're not. Like, would you mind for one second, Craig, if we rewind for, for a minute? I had a question that I wanted to throw out to you guys. As far as you want to rewind, go for not it. Not too far. Uh, just to, to mention the Rambo reference again. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned that it's, re- it's reference is kind of a joke, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But this is something that I love when it happens in TV shows and movies that reference other characters from other TV shows and movies. And it always makes me wonder, I, I would love to have this kind of a conversation with all the Sly fans out there and find out what you guys think, but is Rambo in the Tango and Cash world, is Rambo a movie or is Rambo an actual real person? Because obviously two people know who Rambo is in this movie. Tango knows and the guy on top of the truck knows. Yeah, I, so, think, I think it's a movie. Hmm, yeah, because he, throw, he throws it out there not like – Anybody's not like he threw it out there like we would. Like you just assume everyone would know who Rambo is. Mm-hmm. So and I, Rambo I just, has become part of the dialogue. Like if you want to say someone's a gun-toting like maniac or whatever, or they're a great soldier, you're like, oh, he's Rambo. Yeah, and who played Rambo in that movie? I think in Stallone the did. Universe. Oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course. <laughs> so Tango's a dead ringer. For yeah, Rambo. which is which makes him you know sort of the joke a, a little bit more, um, you know lands the way that it does um i do like that take that there may be in a reality where rambo is really this sort of guy that maybe people read about in the newspapers uh you know who tore up a small town and then went to vietnam and, and won the war for us um very very interesting sort of a question there jeff and uh maybe we'll sprinkle that out on uh, onto the facebook page and see what uh what other folks think awesome so we get the introduction of Lieutenant Gabriel Cash, played by Kurt Russell, and he comes home and is admiring himself in the mirror. And it's one of those Kurt Russell characters that you alluded to, Jeff. You sort of got the Big Trouble in Little China, Jack Burton feel from him. Visually, he looks the same. He's just not wearing the like the Rising Sun yeah. um, uh, muscle oh, shirt. Country, yeah, the T-shirt. But he's got that, you know, that sort of same swagger. And, I mean, uh, Kurt Russell, for a very long time, and, and you could argue most of the 80s, really, really delivered in, in every performance. I think to this day, he still does. Um, I mean, even if you look at a movie like Death Proof, he's just a cool guy. And I think that as much as you talk about charisma and the it factor, that's just something Kurt Russell has. And... He started as a child actor, so um, it's something he had from a young age, and it's something he held on to. And uh, he is really um, definitely one of the highlights of this movie in terms of uh, the the swagger and the coolness that he brings to it. So he's admiring himself in the mirror, and then we have a gunman come through and shoot him. 
Um, and he looks surprised more than anything else, as opposed to being shot in the chest, which is very funny. He gets a second shot. He falls through a window. Um, and then we have a, a big uh, chase sequence. Um, Jeff Ferry, do you want to expand on that or, or wrap up that scene a little bit? Oh, sure. <laughs> My first question to both of you guys is, what is the, the gunman's goal? Is his goal to kill him? Because you find out later it's really not. <laughs> You're taking quite a chance to shoot a guy at five feet away. I understand they're like, they go out of their way later to point out how weak the bullets were. It's still a gun. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a pistol. You're shooting through glass at somebody. He could have easily shot him in the face and be like, oh, oops, he's dead. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good chase scene and it's, you know, you get like the dirty, grimy chasing with Cash because he's the dirty, grimy cop, as opposed to like the really slick opening with Tango to show you he's the uptown LA cop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at this point in the movie, if you're rolling your eyes at this point in the movie, you might as well just shut it off. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not for you. Yeah, well, you just brought up a, a great question I hadn't thought about. Whereas this guy either had to have followed cash all day to see that he put on a vest or had inside information from somebody in the police force that he wore a vest and knew to use um, lighter bullets or a, a, you know, a smaller caliber bullet. Very interesting observation there, Jeff Ferry, uh, Jeff Hewlett. Yeah. I, once the reveal happened later, and this is something that I had forgotten about having not watched this movie for a long time that, and when I rewatched it for this, this discussion, I, my brain automatically assumed that he was trying to kill uh, Cash, only to realize later that it was a plant who was there to set Cash up. But you know, like Jeff Berry said, what if what if the bullets to the chest had knocked him out the window and he fell off the fire escape or whatever and <laughs> cracked his skull open? That would have been. But I mean, I guess the outcome theoretically would have been the same uh, had Cash died there or. Uh, died in prison getting beat up by the other inmates or, you know, electrocuted or whatever happens to him. Cause the, I guess the, the intent was for them to never make it out of prison. So I guess it's just gravy that, uh, he survived the, the shooting incident so that they could have fun with him later. <laughs> yes, yes. So th- then our next sequence is the sequence where Tango is in his office talking to, um, the Terry Hatcher character, Catherine who at that point we're led to believe is probably filling the role of his girlfriend. Is that safe to say, uh, Jeff Ferry? Yeah, I mean, they go out of their way to, like, not let you know what their relationship is than to, like, just make you assume that they're in some sort of relationship. Right. And and I got to say, um, Terry Hatcher has turned in some great performances. She turned in some bad performances. And I think is, this is really one of those bad performances in my opinion uh it's just flat she looks great it seems like a well-written role but uh it just doesn't it doesn't really translate off the page uh for me uh jeff hewlett your feelings on terry hatcher's role in this film well i I, opposite of you i actually thought she was pretty decent in this movie with the exception of the dance scene (laughs) in the club i thought was really bad but um I thought she pulled the role off pretty well, and you know, I I, I got the emotional feeling through the that first scene with her that uh, I had assumed again that she was the girlfriend. Of course, it, it, that was the the logical assumption to make when you first watch the movie. You haven't watched it in a long time, and you forget that it's actually uh, his sister. But 
I thought that the the scenes with Kurt Russell they pulled off the fake sex thing pretty well and and she does seem to have some genuine uh terror moments later when she's been captured. So I mean I didn't think it was too horrible and I wouldn't call it too flat. I mean I can see where you would think that, but I didn't think she was really that bad in it. All right, all right. Uh fair enough. Jeff Ferry. I thought she was pretty good. Uh they don't give her a lot to do and uh I mean she basically has two exposition scenes and then a couple of damsel in distress scenes. I mean, her best scene is probably when she rescues Cash later on. It's mm-hmm. the only time she gets to be proactive in any way. Yeah. I mean, the Stallone scene, she's kind of whining, and then at the end, she's just, you know, damsel in distress and tied up. Yeah. But yeah, her, that's only her real scene to shine is with the <laughs> motorcycle. Yeah. So, and we'll get to that. So she's talking to Tango about going on some kind of dance tour. Now, is this one of those movie jobs that just doesn't exist in real life, or is she supposed to be some kind of glamorous stripper, which is also a job that doesn't really exist outside of, let's say, like Las Vegas? <laughs> Any either one of you guys want to tackle <laughs> her line of work? Well, she's also I a believe- part-time drummer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she was probably trying to uh, find a, a you know audition for either Prince or the Miami Sound Machine. I believe that job is called a plot job. It's called how we explain why she's not at the trial and why she seems to have no idea what's going on. Oh, right. Although, it, I mean, I'll bring this up now because we're still at the beginning. The timeline of this movie is insane because – Oh, it's got to go over months, right? Yeah. Well, you're led to believe by Jack Palance that they're having a big shipment come in in two weeks. So that means that this whole movie happens in the space of – about two weeks. <laughs> so that includes the trial. An arrest, a trial, going to jail, escaping from jail. Oh, goodness. I hadn't even thought about that. All right. So let's get them to jail. So what happens is Tango and Cash, they're basically set up by the Jack Palance character who um, is part of like a trio. He's the main dude, but then you've got some other guys working with him. And somebody suggests just killing them, and he says... I, his excuse doesn't really ring – it doesn't really make much sense to me because uh, it does seem like if you're a criminal and you have a problem, you just eliminate that problem. But in Jack Palance's world, you send them to prison. Either one of you want to touch on that, uh, Jeff Ferry? Well, I mean I get his I get his movie logic, and his real logic makes no sense. His movie logic is he says if we kill them, we'll make them martyrs, and we'll have all-out war with the police. But I mean – if these guys are costing you as much as you say they are, I guess at that point, aren't you willing to take the risk? Yeah, he's like the head guy. And he's got his two little cronies. Who is he's got James Hong, who's Lopan. Right. Okay. <laughs> and then you got Mark Alamo, who plays Lopez in this. Who later on, in D Space Nine goes on to be Goldicott. Right. Okay. So I mean, this is the reason why this type of movie appeals to me. Is I really don't care what the plot is. <laughs> Just throw a bunch of awesome character actors into roles where when they show up, you instantly know who the good and the bad guys are. Right. When Jack Palance walks onto your screen, oh, there's the bad guy. There's <laughs> James Hong. Oh, he's bad. <laughs> like, yeah. Don't need any backstory. Uh, that's great. Great. Uh, Jeff Hewlett. That's actually a great point. I was You, you mentioned earlier, and, and Jeff just mentioned it again, but this movie is really literally full of all of the these character actors who show up all over the place. So – just seeing it in that respect is kind of a nostalgia trip for a lot of these uh, characters. Even even that quirky uh, – the, 
the quirky little scientist guy that works in the police research lab. I uh, forget his name, but he comes up later on and he's in everything. So I love that kind of stuff. But uh, one thing that really stuck out to me about this this setup and, and uh, the introduction of the Jack Palance character and his obsession with the little mice and rats and he has the little uh, maze built inside of his desk was that Tango and Cash – well, Cash cost Jack Palance uh, $60 million and in lost drugs and and munitions and tango cost him more than that now back in the 80s that's a lot of money man oh yeah so you get a sense of um you know back then you're sitting in a movie theater and you hear these giant dollar figures and it just gives you a sense of how big uh you know palance's business is and uh you know i guess that's why he has these two other guys involved with him but i was trying to kind of piece together the obsession with the rats and putting them in the little maze and playing a game with Tango and Cash as opposed to just killing them outright. And, you know, the war with the police is, is obviously, uh, you know, good movie logic, uh, as Jeff said. But I was trying to, to reconcile it. I'm wondering if they maybe they could have fleshed it out more that Jack Powell is more of a gamester and then wanted to play with them a bit uh, before he had them done away with. Because he, he did have his cronies uh, set to kill them both in prison uh, once they got them in there. So, yeah. But do either one of you guys have any thoughts on the, on the obsession with the rats and the maze thing as it applies to, you know, the game? Yeah, I think it might have been one of those things where on paper it worked better than it was executed. I think possibly it just sort of fell through the cracks there in terms of what was sort of planned and what was executed. Mm, makes sense. It's what, yeah, it seems like when somebody wrote it, they were like, this will be great. We'll give him these, these rats and he'll kind of explain the plot to us of like what he's going to do. But his plan only makes sense up to like the first stage of like make them martyr, send them to prison. Well, why are you still screwing with them? Like you got them. You won. They're in prison. Kill them or don't kill them, but you, you've already won. Why keep <laughs> all this craziness going on? Just, you know, have them both shanked in the yard and call it a day. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get them to prison here in the sense that Tango and Cash are sort of both sent to the same um, setup, if you will. They're they're both following some leads. Uh, it leads them to a dead man who is wired and turns out is some kind of undercover informant. At that exact moment, um, a whole crew of police bust through the door and uh, sort of find Tango and Cash with a smoking gun, if you will. Um, they are railroaded. They're accused of the murder. They're accused of being uh, crooked cops. Um, there's a trial. And then they basically, they cop a plea of no contest and get 18 months in what is referred to a handful of times as a club-fed prison. Uh, Jeff Ferry, anything you want to highlight from this sequence that starts with them getting sort of uh, ambushed during this uh, the, the setup and... Uh, culminating in the uh, the no contest at the trial. Yeah, there's a, there's a strange scene of them both following uh, Ray Keen through this place, the ponytail guy. Yes. And then they somehow lose him. But you're led to believe this place is this huge abandoned factory where you can't – and then all of a sudden, like, 60 cops rush into the room. And you've got to wonder, like, where were these guys at? Yeah, like, uh, how, <laughs> how did Tango and Cash not see them hanging out? Yeah. Yeah, it's just – and then, like you said, it's it's – very obvious they want to get from this scene to get them into prison. So, like, their trial is, like, bit, 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 like, okay, here's your first witness. He's on the take. Two one-liners. Next. 
This guy, he's on the take, two one-liners, next. I'm like, that's how they go through their trial. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Hewlett. So this is actually one of the, the pieces of the movie that I thought was was well done because the setup itself implies that there was a much bigger operation going on that we didn't see. So, you know, with, with the setup of the, the of the shooter that gives Cash the phony information and also tips off uh, Tango's captain to direct him to the same place. Uh, you know, and to guide that into happening. Also, the plan to to get the FBI guy there with the wire on him, with that setup, and also in the 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 courtroom, you know, we see this uh, voice expert who we find out later edited a tape together of Tango and Cash's voices into a certain sequence that created this uh, you know this illusion that they were actually in the room. And threatening this FBI guy and actually shooting him after taking the money and not delivering the drugs or whatnot. But, I mean, how long must they have had to tape both of them secretly to get all of that audio that they needed to be able to cut up? I mean, the stuff that you hear them saying is so specific to that scene and that scenario. It it was a head-scratcher to me to think when they would have said those lines to somebody else in order to have them edited together. Yeah, and also you would need an environment where they're clean and they match – you know, they'd have to be inside in a very specific type of room as opposed, exactly. you know. So, yeah, there is uh, the the hints of a much greater conspiracy. So they're supposed to be sent, as we said, to um, a minimum security prison, but they're transported to a maximum security prison. And all of a sudden, I'm getting lockup flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it turns out they're in a very, very um, mean prison as they're they're entering, they see guys that they put behind bars who can't wait to get some revenge. We have the introduction of Cash's roommate who won't allow him to use the toilet. And then we've got uh, Tango's uh, jailmate who uh, is playing with a slinky. It's Clint Howard, and he's crazy, and he wants to let Tango know that he's not afraid of him. <laughs> um, during the night, they get sort of... Uh, taken from their their bunks and they're brought to a very sort of lockup type location which it looks like a boiler room or something in the prison and they're they're tortured um there's an electrocution um and then they're finally saved by the uh what uh the uh the assistant warden and one of cash's former commanding officers um, who recommends that um, they escape. And he gives them a plan, which Cash is on board with, but Tango um, is worried that it's a setup. Jeff Ferry, your take on that whole sequence of events. All right, I'll try to remember. You blew through a lot of movie right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really enjoy the being entered into prison. Like like we covered on Lockup, like every prison movie has the scene where you go into prison. Their entry into prison is insane. Like, they're... <laughs> They're walking in, and there's so much stuff being thrown at them. I mean, it looks like a ticker tape parade down Broadway. So much toilet paper and paper. There's stuff on fire falling yeah. on them. People <laughs> are hitting them with stuff, and it, every single person in there was put away by one of one of them or the other one. Yeah. As they go through, they go through there. They run into the you know Zidar again and knock him down. And then uh, I got to ask you guys real quick: if you had a choice between the two roommates they get assigned, which one would you want? Um, 
I really think the guy that wouldn't let me use the toilet because it seemed like beyond the uh, the toilet issue and his um, his gas, um, you really wouldn't have to deal with too much more. Whereas Clint Howard, I don't think I'd be able to go to sleep and 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 rest that well knowing that he was in the same cell as me with that slinky. Hmm. Yeah, I would go the opposite way. I would take Clint Howard because I know I could beat the crap out of him. <laughs> and I would I would just tie him up every night before I went to sleep. So <laughs> with the I, slinky? I don't, yeah, I don't like well, they, Tango did it. I I don't think uh I I would I would pick the other guy just because I mean you're getting crushed in bed every single night. You know, and you got to you got to smell the guy's farts. He's, I mean, the, he's pretty much right on top of, of cash in that sleeping sequence. And I don't think I could put up with that. Uh, what about you, Jeff? Sorry. I guess I would take Clint Howard and just hoping the same thing. I have to you'd have to overpower him every night because you feel like if you left him untied, he'd probably slit your throat in the night. Yeah. <laughs> the other guy, I mean, you would just have to train yourself not to go to the bathroom the whole time you're in the cell, I guess. I mean, there's <laughs> because you weren't doing anything with him. Right, right. Um, so do you want to continue? Oh, yeah, sure. So they get up to there, and then, of course, they get jumped in their cells, and they get taken down to the thing. The first thing I realize when they get pulled into the boiler room, the first thing that blows my mind is there's cells in the boiler room. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why are there cells down here? Because <laughs> there's people in the cells. I'm like, that makes no sense. Um, I enjoy the scene. It's I like the fight scene. It's probably insane because when you first see it, there's like 50 convicts down there. But again, as we're going through this, I just have to bring up again that while we're mentioning all the action that's happening, every action scene is one-liner, one-liner, one-liner. I mean, they just keep hitting them. They don't all land. Yeah. But like this, like this one, they're like, uh, what do you think this is? You think this is a surprise party? And then the one guy's like, I'm going to kill you. And he's like, I think the surprise party's out. <laughs> I mean, it's stuff like that. They start a fight. They somehow don't get their faces kicked in for like a good two minutes. And then, you know, that's when they get caught. They get tied up and the electrocution starts. A very, you know, crazy electrocution. Again, instead of just beating them, they got to have some crazy electrocution scene. Also, this is another question. If the, if the assistant warden, who luckily knows Cash, hadn't busted in right there, again, were they just going to torture them to death? That's and what it, it seemed like. like, yeah. It, yeah, it seemed like you were going to kill them. Yeah, that seems like the biggest plot hole in this movie. It, again, Jack Palance is hitting all the right notes for a villain. He, I mean, he is literally, he is a, a James Bond-esque villain of like, oh yeah, I could just kill them, but why do that when I can come up with something just far more elaborate where things can go wrong? <laughs> so to end off the scene, the last thing that happens is the assistant warden comes in and helps him, and this guy's brilliant plan is to escape. Hey, how about you just transfer them back to the prison where they're supposed to be? <laughs> <laughs> that probably would have been my solution. Right, right. Uh, Jeff Hewlett. Yeah, I, I think this is where there where Ferry and I are going to split off a bit because the prison sequence is kind of where the movie starts to lose me a bit more. Especially, I guess because I'm such a big fan of Lockup, I think this compared to Lockup is such a departure starting with the entry you know i was just kind of you know i understand throwing stuff down on them but you notice there's no sense of urgency to put out those huge fires like the guards are walking tango and cash to themselves walking past you know a hall down a hallway where humongous fires are raging off to the right and left there's no sprinklers going off 
You know, there's no lockdown going on. There's no, you know, fire team coming in with fire extinguishers. Just letting the prison burn, essentially. That kind of was a head scratch to me. And uh, of course, you know, you've got the two psycho roommates who, you know, really don't get explored too, too much. But again, this is another one of those, you know, movie style corrupt prisons where pretty much anything and everything goes. You know, not one. Well, I mean, the assistant warden, but, you know, where is he when all this stuff is going on? There's not one uh, seemingly good person that's that's trying to stop any of this insanity from going on and, uh, you know, throwing them down the laundry chute. Neither one of them breaking any bones or fracturing their skulls or anything on the way down or hitting the floor. And I don't know, it just seems like a, a, a very, very over the top prison scene where maybe it went a little too far for my liking. All right. We then get, I think, probably a sequence that's a little bit more in line with what you're looking for, Jeff, which is the the escape uh, sequence where Tango decides he doesn't want to partake in it. So uh, Cash goes off. We have this sequence where a big giant movie fan is stopped for him to climb through. I love those. <laughs> yes. And sure enough, it was as Tango worried. It was a setup. Cash's uh, former boss rolls down and is murdered his throat was slit and um we've got cops jaw and uh some attack dogs coming from the direction that cash was supposed to escape from and he runs back into the big fan room and sure enough the fans have been fired back up and he closes the door and sort of pries it uh shut with a crowbar he has and he holds on to the crowbar uh, to prevent being pulled in or sucked in by the fans. Um, he finally ends up next to the fans. And then we've got the, the big save from Tango, who tries something in the fan to stop it in enough time for Cash to climb through. And this is the kind of stuff that I really, really respond to in this movie. I think it's a fun, exciting sequence. As telegraphed as it was that Tango was going to sort of come in and save the day, it still really works for me. Jeff Hewlett, um, is this more in line with the stuff you're looking for from this movie? Um, a, a bit more. I, I think it was toned down slightly, although, you know, you have some of the traditional action movie uh, telegraphing with the fan that's mysteriously turned off while the other one's on. And you also have the weird power plant type thing they have to walk through where electricity is inexplicably arcing all over the place that, you know, someone's going to get thrown into it. At some point. So, you know, this is a little more in line with with action movie stuff that I dig. But still, there's some some questionable moments in there that uh, although there was some very good uh, I, I neglected to mention during the electrocution scenes earlier, there was some of that great sly pain acting that we love so much. Yes. Yes. Um, Jeff Ferry. <laughs> this just once again proves that just like lock up every prison is a giant labyrinth nightmare when you try to <laughs> yeah. go through it. There's giant fans and huge electrical arcing things. I mean, do they have an architect when they build these places? You figure a prison you'd want to make simple with less, less places to escape through. Yeah. Like maybe it's not a great idea to have a huge wire that goes over that's easily reached that you can slide over. <laughs> I do enjoy that they have the same conversation that I think every single person would have right there. Well, like, if you just grab onto one wire, you'll be okay. And they're both like, uh, I don't know. Like, because nobody knows. Without ground, yeah, yeah. And then he's like, well, 
you know, if I don't make it, are you even going to try? And he's like, well, it depends on how close you get. Because <laughs> that'd be my luck. I would jump and not even get the wire just fall right off the side of the building. <laughs> yes, yes. So that actually is a really um, fun sequence as well. And it really sort of plays, you know, to the, the two characters and, you know, sort of the the bond they might be developing, uh, even though they're still not quite getting along that much. Cash makes it over the uh, the fence and is on his way. But before Tango can jump on uh, and make his escape, the jaw makes his final appearance. We have a, a quick fight sequence that ends with uh, the jaw being electrocuted. So once they're out of prison, they go their separate ways and Tango tells Cash that if he needs to contact him, go to the Cleopatra Club and ask for Catherine. So then we've got sort of the, much like the movie started with the, the two cops um, out on their own, they are now both out on their own, separately visiting uh, the witnesses that helped frame them in court. So we've got the the one federal agent that had sort of set them up, admitting to Tango that uh, there was, in fact, a, a setup that occurred. Um, and then we've separately got Cash discovering via Skinner, uh, Michael Jeter, the audio expert, that um, the tapes were doctored. So, uh, Jeff Ferry, do you want to uh, give your thoughts on, on those individual sequences? Well, it was good that they followed up on one of the the people they wanted to get back at from the trial. <laughs> so they uh, individually go out and try to, you know, they're going to, just like every movie, they're going to prove their innocence, which I will say by the end of this movie, I really don't think they have. <laughs> just <laughs> as a, as a, you know, spoiler alert, I really don't think they have proved their innocence by the end of it. I mean, they pretty much wiped out a lot of people, but I don't think they proved their innocence. Yeah, I did. I enjoyed that the first guy that they interview basically doesn't help them at all. You know, the guy admits that there's a setup, and then he's dead five seconds later. So he did nothing to help them. Right. And then, you know, Cash finds the other guy, and then they play that bit of music that you alluded to earlier that you really didn't care for. <laughs> that I think is awesome. But that's just me. I also, am I the only one that thought Michael Jeter and Frank Oz were the same person? <laughs> because I always did. <laughs> I definitely see that. <laughs> oh, too funny. Jeff Hewlett. Well, we do learn a couple of interesting things through this this sequence. Um, one is that Kurt Russell has no problem keeping his hair nice through his uh, fugitive time. <laughs> He's able to get the hair care products he needs to to properly tease it out. And uh, Kurt Russell still looks exactly like Kurt Russell uh, when he's in drag to me. I, don't, I was not convinced <laughs> at all <laughs> by by the drag costume. But uh, uh, we also got the big reveal that, that Terry Hatcher is Tango's sister when they finally come together again. And, you know, it's, it was pretty amazing to me how public the two of them could be while they were on the run. I mean, being these famous cops who are, you know, everybody knows them. It's amazing how out there in public they could be. Like, you know, with Cash going into a crowded dance club, you know, you would think at least half the place or more would recognize him instantly. Uh, and, and, you know, Tango being out and about, you would think that somebody would have identified them immediately. And they, they don't seem to go through a lot of pains to hide themselves uh, when they're on the run. But there were some interesting scenes throughout this. I, I did like um, how they got back to the house together. And I like the kind of the funny 
quasi sex scene where they they don't bother to explain they didn't actually do it. So it was kind of a little, nice little comedy bit there, uh, you know, letting Tango believe that there was something going on that wasn't. That's always a good one uh, when, when that happens in other movies as well. So as far as the help is concerned, I, I think that at, at what Jeff said before with them not really clearing their names uh, through, through the end of the movie, I think that it's not expanded upon as much as it probably should have been, but I think that the tape that Cash is able to retrieve, and he briefly mentions that that's what's going to exonerate them. I think maybe if they'd have circled back with that at the end of the movie, maybe it would have been much clearer how they got off. But I think that tape is how they're supposedly going to get you know, back in the good graces. What was it, the unedited version of the hours and hours and hours of dialogue that was utilized? Well, it was a, it was a Memorex tape, right? Yeah. Well, I think it was that was the maybe it was the original tape that was switched. Oh, right. Yeah, that's uh, the tape from when I guess from when they what they really said when they come into that room. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Oh, but it right, was right. Yeah, where they say why is this guy wired? So uh, J- Jeff Hewlett took us a little um, further into the movie. Um, oh, sorry. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> it, it's fine. I just want to make sure everybody's caught up. So um, Cash goes to the Cleopatra Club looking for Catherine. Bartender says there's dozens of girls here named Catherine. Catherine is on stage doing her uh, her audition for Prince, and she notices Cash, and and realizes that he's looking for her. And they they meet backstage as cops sort of flood into the club. And then we've got the great uh, escape moment where Catherine dresses up like a biker. She's got a helmet on. And uh, as she's leaving the club, of course, the cops stop her because they think it's possibly Cash. And then we've got Kurt Russell with a uh, a toe-to-head shot that pans up um, in full drag. So uh, <laughs> Jeff Ferry, feelings on that sort of uh, ingenious escape that they make? You want my feelings on Kurt Russell in drag? <laughs> He's, He's got some legs, action. right? <laughs> <laughs> He's got the legs for it. <laughs> But yeah, again, to prove the point, like, uh, like, uh, Hewlett was saying, where they're just out and about, even though they're famous murderers that have escaped, and they're cops that everybody apparently knew before, he goes to visit Owen at a police facility, and nobody notices him. So, I mean, apparently they're, they're wearing, they have like, everybody has face blindness in, in this movie, except for Kiki, Catherine, who can recognize him in a crowded, dark thing, and can pick him out of the crowd. Yeah. Also, um, I wanted to mention this. There's a thing on the the trivia for this that says it was the last movie re- released in the 80s. Right. Which I think is – I mean it's almost perfect <laughs> because it is a pure 80s movie. Yeah. And just to add to that point, in this scene and a scene earlier in the movie during one of the car chases, there's nudity for no reason. Oh, I know. Yes, there is. <laughs> he just – he Cash just walks into the back room and – Every woman's naked. Nobody cares that he's back there because nobody knows who he is. Yeah. It's just totally cool. This guy walked back there and the naked woman after naked woman walks by and he's just like looking as every one of them walks by. Yeah, and there's a lot of F-bombs in this movie too. Oh, yeah, I didn't mean to mention that. It's not even just F-bombs. Like they curse on like just like you would never curse like this on like anything except for like Deadwood. Yeah. Like there's an unbelievable – this sounds like me talking to my friends. There's so much cursing going on. <laughs> like every sentence is like – who do you F mess with my gun and F this? I'm like, I mean, it doesn't even, like, to me, you know, and we're all from New Jersey, so it doesn't even phase us. Yeah. Like, maybe normal people, this bothers. Yeah, <laughs> like, out of the gate, they had to know it was going to be an R-rated movie. Yeah. 
I would love to see the TV edited version of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Love to see if we if, if any of those clips are on uh, on YouTube there. Um, Jeff Hewlett, thoughts on the Cleopatra Club escape? Well, I I would love to to discuss in depth Terry Hatcher's drumming skills and, and what the purpose <laughs> of this was. But you know, when you actually see her dance routine and you you think about the discussions that she's had with Tango about her career uh, as a dancer, it makes me think that. You know, knowing how protective Tango is of his sister and, and all the flack that he gives Cash about, you know, potentially dating his sister and having sex with his sister, I really don't think she was a stripper. I, I really think it's some kind of like erotic art house, eighties art house kind of thing. Uh, you know, she's got some kind of avant garde, you know, futuristic act where she just kind of, you know, comes out, gyrates around with some tinsel on a fan and, and beats on some drums. Uh, some electronic 80s drum pads. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It was a very strange sequence. And I, I've already mentioned Kurt Russell and drag, but the cop hitting on them as they leave and the dykes on a bike <laughs> reference. It's <laughs> a I great band name, by the way. That, yeah. I mean, I think mean, I guess they had to throw the, the homosexual reference in there as they drove away on, on the giant motorcycle. But uh I, I guess as far as 80s movies, escape plans go, it, it ranks up there pretty high. Yeah, it's a fun little sequence. Um, and then that leads to the meetup at the house where, um, as you referenced, uh, Jeff, Tango overhears Cash and uh, and Kiki thinking that they're having sex. He barges in. Cash doesn't realize it's him. At the same time, Jeffrey Lewis shows up. Captain Schroeder lets them know that they have 24 hours to find out who Brian James is working for. And then um, we get that great rooftop sequence where they're dangling Brian James off the roof. He's not buying it. And then they decide to do um, a bad cop, worst cop routine where Tango puts a grenade in Brian James's mouth with tape and is going to pull the pin. Um, and they finally get him to give the name. Jeff Hewlett, your thoughts on that whole sequence with Brian James um, and the excellent accent that he's doing. Oh, absolutely. So before I jump onto that scene, I want to say uh, during after the end of the sex scene where they're outside discussing, uh, you know, the potential relationship between Cash and, and Tango's sister. I, and I think I, I'm right on this, but if, if I'm wrong on this, somebody point this out to me, please. But I think this is the only movie in Sylvester Stallone's entire career where Sly says the words bump uglies. <laughs> yeah, that just <laughs> stuck out to me like a sore thumb as like this ridiculous 80s sexual reference. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody in my own life say bump uglies, but it was hysterical to me to hear him say that again. But I think the scene on the rooftop is probably my favorite scene in the entire movie. I think that the performance of all three of them, uh, Brian James and Sly and Kurt Russell, I think all of them deliver an incredible performance. The accent, of course, by Brian James is amazing, but I think the bad cop, worst cop routine is the best interplay between Tango and Cash and the entire movie. They both play it really, really well, and they kind of come up with it on the fly. I mean, you've seen the interactions between them throughout the entire movie so far have been kind of, you know, one-liners and poking fun at each other, and there's a bit of a rivalry there, but this is the first time you see them really totally work together on something. And 
I, I love the switch in character for Tango as he kind of goes crazier. I think he plays that really well. And Kurt Russell really sells the fact that he's not on board with it. And I just, I love this entire sequence. And for me, this actually redeems a lot of the other parts of the movie that I, I wasn't okay with. Right on, right on. Jeff Ferry. Yeah, it, it's an excellent suite. And they really, when they, after they dangle him off, because that's plan A to dangle the guy off the roof. And I think most of us, if we could keep our wits about us, would realize that, like, no one's really going to drop you off a roof because you haven't told them anything. So why would they drop you? So, like, they play it very well in the next scene that, like, all right, he's giving up. He's just, plan B is to just kill you because I don't care anymore. You're not telling me what I want to know. But they start out real slow with, like, oh, this is plan B, and they're starting, like, real. And they work up to kind of getting into their, you know, fake fight that they get into where Cash ends up storming away. Like, they build up real well. Like, so you actually bought that it could be that, but, like, he was just that crazy. So I think it worked pretty well there. I will say this, though. I also thought Brian James was running a pretty good accent. But I'm going to throw it out there to anybody from the United Kingdom because part of me feels like that his accent probably is horrible. <laughs> it's one and of those movie accents. It's I, one I, of those, I, I like, can hear that. We're Americans. Like, every accent sounds right to us. <laughs> yeah, he sounds cockney. That's about as close as I can get. I get the feeling that if some sort of anyone in the, the British area were to the British Isles listens to this, they're probably like, this guy, he's terrible. To me, I thought the guy was British till I saw him get interviewed. Yeah. Well, I do know we have um, the, the guys um, over at 80s Picture House listen. Hello, guys. And uh, I'm sure they'll chime in um, with their verdict on the, <laughs> the accents. <laughs> All right, so this pretty much leads us to the the climax of the film where um, they get the name and the location of uh, Jack Palance's character, and they go to Michael Pollard, who was sort of like the cue of the movie, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Who gives them this tricked-out truck that's heavily armored and it's got weapons on it, and they're able to sort of storm that compound they blow everything up. They end up finally killing uh, Brian James, who they, they had let go. The, the big movie uh, good guy mistake of letting a bad guy go, knowing that he'll come back. Um, and we learned that Catherine Kiki has been kidnapped and is being held by uh, by the crime lords. So leading up right to the moment where we sort of have the showdown with Jack Palance. Uh, Jeff Hewlett, is there anything in this sequence um with lots of explosion, it almost looked like second unit from Demolition Man to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, two things, two things about this. One is that I'm, I'm going to call out Christopher Nolan on this podcast for ripping off that weaponized uh, truck for the Batmobile at Batman Begins. Because oh, obviously right. <laughs> where he stole it from. But there, there's hidden in this sequence, there is a moment uh, that I think is probably one of the most genuine moments in the whole movie where – you get Tango talking about, uh, you know, not wanting his sister to get the phone call one night that Cash has been killed in the line of duty. Right. And that's why he stands against them dating. I mean, eventually he relents. But I think that that short conversation is probably the, the best ser- or one, one of the very few serious and one of the most genuine moments in the movie. And I, I guess maybe if you take that uh, that small, tiny sequence and you extrapolate that out 
as if the whole movie was done that way. I guess maybe that's kind of your glimpse into what the movie would have been had it been made as a serious film. Right, right. Jeff Ferry. I mean, there's no way of putting it. The attack on the compound is insane. I mean, the compound is, it is a, like I said earlier, he's a James Bond villain and the man has a lair. <laughs> he has an, he has an army of goons who the have custom vehicles, custom vehicles. He's got trucks with machine guns on him. He's got a monster truck for some reason. He has giant earth movers that they use. Although they will say when they come in with their, their tricked out a uh, little SUV they're driving in there that has like a cannon on the side of it and um, Owen mentions that it's a 20 millimeter cannon. That's the same type of gun that's on an F-15. <laughs> so like, it wouldn't like one shot would have decimated every vehicle that came near them. Right. <laughs> they, would well, just, what, they would have blown them to pieces. What kind of reinforcement, Jeff, would they have needed to do on the side of that truck to be able to withstand the well, firing of the gun in the first place? The fir- the minute the gun fired, the entire thing would have gone in the other direction and spun. Yeah. <laughs> because it has not enough weight. I mean, if you've ever seen, like, if they ever watch a video of an A-10 shooting, yeah. when it fires its gun, it almost, it slows down and almost stops flying <laughs> because the gun's so powerful. Yeah, those are supposed to be mounted on vehicles, especially one that only probably weighs, like, what, two, three tons? <laughs> yeah. It would have been better if the first time they fired it blew the side of their truck off. I guess that's a different movie, though. But, yeah, I mean, he's got everything. The, the place is a villain lair from beginning to end. The man has a self-destruct sequence on his house. On his, why would you need that? Why does he need a self-destruct thing on his place? It's, it's a video game at this point. When they reach this point, you gotta get through those guys. You have a few sub-bosses, like the, um, like the monster truck. Um, you gotta get inside, then you fight two more sub-bosses, which is Quan and Lopez, those two guys who are worthless. And then you have to fight two more sub-bosses. You gotta fight Rakeen and the guy we haven't seen till now who likes to kick through glass. Yes. Yeah, that guy. And then you have to get to the main guy who, while not a good fighter, since he's smart, has a hall of mirrors for some reason. <laughs> That's another very Bond moment. Yeah. It's right out of Man with the Golden yeah. Gun. With the exact exception of the moment he needed to use it there, what purpose did that room serve? <laughs> Masturbation Was that like chamber. the coat room until this point? <laughs> I think it was the wank chamber. <laughs> oh, no. Well, yeah, he can tell which one's him because he's using the other hand in all the mirrors. Oh, no. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So um, Cash takes a bullet um, for Tango in the arm, and it goes clean through, so he's not um, in any really serious um, – not really seriously injured. Um, we have the big showdown with, with Jack Palance's character who's got a gun to Kiki's head, and um, as uh, – we alluded to already, they're in a, a hall of mirrors, so they don't know which one to shoot. Tango and Cash communicate that they both know which one to shoot, and they'll shoot on the on their signal. They take him out, and then uh, we get each one's reasoning for why they shot the one they did. And uh, what Tango's reason is, what, a ring? The ring was on the other hand. Yeah, and what was Cash's reason? The, he, had, he was wearing a monogram, and it was reversed in the mirrors. Right, right. So very cool details they found there. And then we've got really the sort of, you know, 80s movie wrap-up where they save the day, we get the newspaper headline that they're they're off the hook, and we finally get them sort of high-fiving, which is sort of teased 
throughout the whole movie. Uh, they go to high five a couple times and they're never, never able to pull it off. And they finally do at the end and they do it again for the picture that they take for the newspaper. And then I guess they ride off into the sunset. Jeff Hewlett feelings on the wrap up of this movie. Well, we glossed over the fact that we have the action movie trope that Stallone himself coined, which is the running away from the explosion and jumping just as it blows up and being safe. I mean, you know, they had that thrown in at the end there with the three of them that you know, running away from the exploding, self-destructing uh, facilities. That was kind of cool. And um, I don't know, as Jeff Ferry alluded to earlier, I really wanted more of a wrap up to this movie. I think the end feels kind of tacked on. And, you know, with the, the newspaper flash and the high fives at the end, they really don't explain how they get out of this situation. I mean, they were convicted of murder and sentenced to prison and escape prison, which is a, an offense on its own, which is jailable as well. I mean, it doesn't seem to be that all of the evidence kind of went up in that facility aside from that tape. And I guess all of the witnesses who were still alive that were originally paid off, I guess maybe they all throw themselves on swords and, and kind of come to the tango and cash's defense. But I really was hoping for more of a, an epilogue to this movie. Right, right. Yeah, and it seems like uh, movies can go two, uh, one of two ways. They get the quick wrap-up or we get the extended um, when is this movie going to end ending. Jeff Ferry. Yeah, I think you're correct. I think what this movie needed was we didn't need the 20-minute wrap-up. I think we needed the two-minute scene at the end. You have the explosion, the high-five, maybe even the uh, – you cut to the paper where they're high-fiving, and then somebody puts the paper down. It's one of them. They have a quick, you know, they're talking, blah, blah, blah. The sister's there. They're dating or they're engaged or something. They throw, they trade a few lines. And they talk about their next wacky adventure they're going to go on. <laughs> and then you go, they get a call and they have to run out and credits. I think that's how it would go today. Like you you'd get that one last scene with them. I don't think you'd end with the high five and that's it. <laughs> oh, before I forget, if I don't know if either one of you, did either one of you watch the trailer for this movie? No. No. Oh, do yourself a favor when this ends. Look up the trailer for this movie. It is the worst trailer I've ever seen. It is horrible. I wouldn't want to watch this movie. If I can remember the line, I think the line something goes like this. <clears throat> Ray Tango loves money, but he can't stand cash. <laughs> I mean, do you need to go on? It's horrible. It's the worst. And it's got the, the movie voice guy doing it. It, it. it sounds like a parody. It's like somebody made a parody trailer for it. Oh, that is that is too funny. So before we wrap up things here, I want to just um, say hi to Steve Ricardo, who sent us in his thoughts on the movie. And a lot of what he sprinkled uh, in his note to us, we addressed during the movie. So uh, thank you for the heads up in certain points, Steve. And um, we always appreciate your input over on the Facebook page. And if you're not joining us yet, Stop over at Facebook.com slash The Slycast. And we've actually picked up a few new likes the last couple of days. So welcome to all our new Facebook likes and uh, and anybody in general who's listening. So, um, so guys, that was Tango and Cash. And I got to say, I think it was really good that we hadn't really talked too much prior to sitting down to record this because... I know earlier in the day I saw Jeff Hewlett real quick, and uh, he was curious of which direction you were going to go, Jeff Ferry. And uh, I will say that um, I was pleasantly surprised with your um, 
your love of this movie, and I think um, your love for it is a little infectious and slightly changed my opinion of this. I will say that if you watch this movie without sort of looking th- through it, uh, you know, through the lens of a Stallone movie, it's a lot more successful. It seems to me like the this movie doesn't have as much of that Stallone quality control, I'll call it, in terms of it seems like maybe this was a movie that got away from him or a movie that he didn't feel like fighting for as much. But either way, I think that's really my biggest problem with it is there are certain things that occur in the movie that I, I just think um, Stallone at a different point in his career might not have allowed. Uh, Jeff Ferry, do you want to give your final thoughts on Tango and Cash? Yeah, I would say overall this movie is less Stallone movie and more 80s buddy cop movie. Yeah. I mean, that's where it's, the difference is. I mean, he's – I mean – because he's not the star. He's the co-star with someone who's an equal footing with him. And they're equally billed throughout it. So it's not a very, it's not a Rambo Rocky lockup where he's, you know, he's not number one on the call sheet every day for this one. Right. But I mean, I mean, the reason why I love it is because it is end of the eighties movie to the T. Give me two stars, fill out the rest of the roster with every, you know, crazy character actor you can find. Throw me a lot of one-liners, leave the script at the door, and then we're good to go. Right, right. <laughs> Very cool. Jeff Hewlett. Well, I, I don't think I have a lot more to say about the movie itself that we haven't already said, and I, I think that Jeff Ferry's love for this movie is is great. I, I'm so glad that uh, at least one of us really, really has a soft spot for this film. And I think if I ever found myself in conversation with Sly himself, one thing I would really love to ask him about if he has any recollection is the very, very, very beginning of this movie, right after the uh, studio logo is flashed on the screen, you hear Sly say, okay, let's do it. (laughs) I would love to ask him where that came from and why they thought that was, why they thought to put that at the beginning of the movie. It seems to have no impact, but it's there for a reason, obviously. And I think it's advanced warning that, you're going to get a goofy movie. <laughs> I guess so. I would just, I would really love to know if there was any rhyme or reason to doing that. So, uh, but Jeff, I, I, I tip my hat to you as somebody who's gotten flack for liking some of the other, uh, what people consider questionable sly movies of the eighties. I'm, I'm glad that somebody else likes questionable sly movies. That's all right. Cause I usually get the flack for being the one that hates all the movies. <laughs> right. Right. So guys, as always, this was a, a great discussion And looking ahead, before we get to the next movie in our our uh, rundown here, which is Rocky Five, next month we're going to be sitting down with a with a special guest, and what we're going to do is we're going to talk to him, and then we're also going to run through Rocky's uh, Rocky one through four with him, just to sort of get his take. And this is a guest that I'm very excited about. It's Mike Kunda who uh, is an author and also a Rocky impersonator who here in Philadelphia, um, just south of us, does a Rocky tour. So we're going to talk to him next episode. We're going to learn about his life, his career, and get his take on the Rocky movies before we do what will be probably the definitive discussion of Rocky V uh, on our June episode. So guys, I know um, I'm looking forward to it. And I'm sure you're looking forward to it. Uh, any last thoughts before we leave Jeff Hewlett? 
I'm really excited about Mike coming on the show. We've talked about this offline several times. I'm really, really excited to have him on, and and I'm really looking forward to that Rocky Five discussion. I think that's going to be completely and totally epic. I can't wait. I, it's it's a it's a movie that. I've sort of had circled on my calendar as the movie that I really think is going to make for one of our best discussions. And I think Mike is really going to, um, really going to help there. Jeff Ferry. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've held off watching Rocky five. So it's been years and years because I want it fresh in my mind when we watch it. <laughs> Cause I'm getting it from both sides. I don't know about you guys. I'm getting people telling me how much they hate it. Other yeah. people trying to defend it and they want to know what side everybody's going to come down on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely I mean, it going to be very interesting. Yeah, it is going to make for an interesting episode. So, uh, so we're going to sort of deviate next month a little bit, but I think it's sort of a bridge episode that's necessary, and I think you're all really going to enjoy it. So, um, next month will be a, a really cool discussion, and then in June we'll talk Rocky Five. And until then, we will see you on the Facebook group. Take care.